This evening I would like to consider what our Lord has done for us from 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 18 tonight. We've now heard the Scripture's testimony to the work of Christ, to the events surrounding His death. Peter helps us understand the significance of it. What does it mean? Does it mean that the Son of God has died upon the cross? What does that mean to people living thousands of years later? Many passages in the Bible we could go to, but 1 Peter chapter 1 is a beautiful passage that helps us understand the work of Christ. He begins in verse 18 saying, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so, Christian, this evening I would like to remind you that you have been ransomed. Or as most translations put it, you have been redeemed. The redemption is this idea that you have been purchased, you have been bought. And so when we think about the cross of Christ, we can think of it in the context of the fact that I have been bought by Him. Usually, especially in Peter's day, when one would speak about redemption, it was almost exclusively in the context of slaves. Slaves were the ones who were redeemed. They were bought out of their slavery into freedom. The great biblical picture of this redemption, of course, is the the events of uh, the exodus of God's people from uh, Egypt. God's people enslaved in Egypt, they there had a cruel taskmaster named Pharaoh, and God wanted his people to come and to worship him. He wanted his people to go back home. He wanted his children back. So he told this slave master, Pharaoh, if you do not let my children come and worship me, I will strike down every firstborn male in every home in Egypt, except for those who have faith in me. How do you know if you had faith in him? Well, you took a lamb without blemish or spot. You killed him. You gathered its blood and you put it upon your doorpost. And so when the angel of death came and killed every firstborn in every home, he would pass over the homes of those who trusted in their Redeemer. And by this great, powerful, mighty, terrible work of God, his people were redeemed. He bought them out of slavery. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 8, it is because of The Lord loves you, that the Lord redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Now, as great as that redemption was, the mightiest empire in the world defeated single-handedly by the God of this universe to redeem his people. As great as that was, it is but a shadow to the redemption in which you and I have experienced the death of Jesus Christ. It is a pointer. It is intended to show us that you and I who are in Christ have been redeemed. Now, now we know this. If you're a Christian, you know that you have been redeemed. But so did Peter's audience. You see that in verse 18? He says, knowing that you were ransomed or knowing that you were redeemed. They, They know this. 
And even though they know it, it's good to be reminded, isn't it, for them and for us. And so tonight, let's briefly consider our redemption. First of all, I'd like to consider our captivity, or perhaps we could put it, the need for redemption. Secondly, I would like to consider the ransom, or we might put it the cost of redemption. So first of all, think about the need of redemption. When, when we talk about redemption, we're implying there's a bondage. There's a captivity. And that captivity, it, it, uh, the Bible tells us, is that we are all uh, experience that type of enslavement. And this is somewhat unusual for us in, in our day, because especially in the land in which you live, people would, will gladly say to you, I'm not a slave. I am free. And I'm not a slave to anyone or to anything. I'm an American. I vote, right? I do what I say. I say what I want. I'm free. And yet the Bible would say, you're not free. That's a lie. Jesus Christ himself would say in John chapter 8, whoever commits sin is therefore a slave to sin. All people, including Americans, are not free. They are slaves. Now, we don't see our slavery very clearly because our slavery is voluntary. It hasn't been thrust upon us. We have chosen our taskmaster. Of course, some people's enslavement is obvious. It might be some form of addiction or alcoholism or pornography. But for others, their enslavement is far more subtle. We may be enslaved to living for comfort, maybe enslaved to living for our home or for our job or our success. We may be enslaved to the opinions of others about us. We want to be well thought of. We want to be thought of as beautiful or intelligent or successful. We may be enslaved to hypocrisy or deceit or pride. But every one of us, at least at one time, was enslaved, and therefore we must be freed. Peter calls it our feudal life. You notice that in verse 18? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He says this sinful life is futility, it's emptiness, it's meaninglessness. And you need to be ransomed from it, this feudal ways. Which tells us, by the way, that our redemption is just not a matter of the forgiveness of sins. It's just not a matter of, if you will, freeing us. It is a, it is a matter of giving us victory over sin. Victory over the feudal ways. You've been liberated from a feudal life, he said. The, the purpose of our ransom is not simply our forgiveness, but our transformation. And Paul would write in Titus chapter 2, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself. That's Good Friday. He gave himself. He went to a cross. Why? To redeem us. And note this for two things. Redeem us from all lawlessness. And, number two, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so, Christian, when you think about the redemption that Christ accomplished for you, think about, yes, I am redeemed from the penalty of sin. I've been redeemed from all lawlessness. But I'm also redeemed from the power of sin in my life. I am redeemed so that I might be part of God's possession who is zealous for good works. He intends to transform us through our redemption. Therefore, lay aside your shackles to sin. He's died to free you. He's died not so you can manage your sin or dabble in sin. He has died that you might put to death your sin. You've been ransomed. You've been redeemed from a prison of futility. But what was the payment? What is the cost of that redemption? 
You see, to redeem someone, there has to be a payment. There is always a ransom when there is a redemption. It would be like if you did not have a payment and a redemption, it would be like saying, I bought something, but there was no transfer of money. Let's say, I, I, I bought a car from you. I say, I bought a car from you. And you say, what did it cost? I say, well, I didn't pay anything. Well, you say, well, you, you didn't buy it then. It was given to you. Right? Well, the same idea that, that uh, redemption has to have a price. The price is always referred to as the ransom. Now, typically when you would redeem a slave, you would pay money. Perhaps gold or silver. But not for us. You see what Peter says in verse 18? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. He didn't pay silver or gold or money for you. So what did he buy us with? You know, don't you? Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ. It's Jesus' blood. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption in His blood. Jesus Himself would say in Mark 10 and verse 45, The Son of Man has come to give His life as a ransom for many. This was His plan. To pay with His blood to redeem you from your sin, from your futility. And I think it's going back all the way back to our parents, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God and God in His mercy did not kill them but rather gathered them together and killed two animals as their substitutes and, and took the skins of those animals and covered their nakedness, teaching them as they watched in horror. Perhaps the first thing died in front of them as the animal's lifeblood spilled upon the earth, showing them, just as he did the Jews in Egypt, just as he did the nation of Israel yearly in the Day of Atonement, just as he did for, for those who watched Calvary's events, or even us 2,000 years later on Good Friday, that the ransom price is blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we, if we are to be redeemed, one has to die for us. A perfect one. One who does not die for his own sin. This has been God's plan from the very creation of the world. Note verse 20. He was foreknown from the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for our sake. This is not some last-minute plan that God threw together without any real cost. Peter preached at Pentecost. This man, Jesus, was delivered up by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross and put him to death. This is God's plan to pay for your redemption through the blood of his son. Now, Peter tells us two things about that blood. He tells us, first of all, that that blood is of surpassing value. It is far more valuable than silver or gold. Note verse 19, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is precious. You know why it's precious? Because it was the blood of the only person who walked upon this earth who was without spot or blemish. The only man who ever lived in perfect obedience to the Father. Peter explains in verse 19 that, that he was like that of a lamb without blo- a blemish or spot. In him there was no sin. It was just perfect obedience. Day after day after day. Unfailing perfection. No futility in thought, word, or deed. Not one spot was upon him. As has been said, before you were obedient to Him, Jesus Christ was obedient for you. And therefore, His blood is precious. He's the best man ever to live. 
And he has died for rebels and sinners in the death of the perfect Son of God. It is of surpassing value. But it is also, and secondly, eternally durable. Compared to the blood of Christ, cheap things like silver and gold are perishable. Did you see that in verse 18? That we ransom not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now, now, silver or gold may not seem perishable to you and I. They may seem like they last long. You may even have some silver or gold in your family that has been passed down from generation to generation. And perhaps even in your family for, for decades or, or centuries even. And yet, nevertheless, Peter simply dismisses them as perishable. Compared to the blood of Christ, things like silver and gold are like a rotten egg or a spoiled peach. It is eternally durable. Everything else will pass away, but the blood of Christ endures forever. Therefore, Jesus' blood is infinitely valuable and eternally durable. It is both permanent and precious. It is therefore able to cover any sin. It is able to cover any sinner. It is able to redeem the one who is most um, entangled in his enslavement. Christian, you should therefore find assurance that you are accepted by God. You should find assurance when the voice of the accuser comes or your conscience begins to accuse you and say things to you like, how can he love you? How can you think that you are okay with a holy God? You are to look away from your record and look to the work that Christ has accomplished and see his blood of eternal permanence and infinite preciousness. Your heart should soar in assurance when you consider the cross of Christ. I am accepted by a holy God because of the payment that has been paid for me. And yet at the same time, we ought never to twist that assurance into a justification for sin. Okay, if the payment's been paid, then I could just go on and, and, and go back into sin. Now don't go back to Egypt. Don't put the shackles back on after he has bought your freedom. It is our great justification to follow him. Our great uh, compelling reality that we might please him with how we live. There's a story of a seminary student who told of how when he was a boy, he fell in love with golf. And his parents uh, bought him a golf club and a harmless wiffle ball, which he could hit around the backyard. Well, one day he was thinking his parents were not home. and He was overcome with the temptation to kind of hear that, that clink of that ball, a real golf ball against the golf club. And so he went to his father's bag and got a golf ball and teed it up in the backyard and, and gave it as hard of a whack as he could. And, and his golf ability is, is kind of like mine, I think. It, the ball flies straight for 75 yards and then makes a 90 degree left turn. And so he hit that ball as hard as he could and it, and it, it went off its course and went right towards the house, right towards a window and with a crash right through the window. And then to make matters worse, it was immediately followed by a piercing scream. So this boy ran into the house, burst into the living room, and to his horror saw his mother standing in front of a broken window with blood streaming down her face. He cried out, Mom, I could have killed you. 
She hugged him, said, it's all right, I'm okay. And yet this man concluded, after I saw my mother bleeding, I could never so much as carry a golf club across the lawn of our backyard. The sight of her standing there with blood flowing down, blood that I had caused, changed my behavior forever. As you gaze upon the blood of Christ, blood that you have caused, will that not compel you towards righteousness, not to earn his love, but because he has already demonstrated it for you? It certainly happened in the life of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, a man very familiar with redemption for he owned and sold slaves before he came to Christ. He wrote about that event, that coming to Christ in the form of a poem. He said, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilled and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. But a second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou may live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief, in mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. May the death of our Lord propel us from this room into life to live for the one who died for us. We've been reminded of his death tonight in Saul. In, in scripture and now in sermon and, and now we will do one final time as we come to the sacrament as we remember the Lord's death we remember that a price has been paid for our redemption as you hold these elements in your hand may your heart be assured that you Christian are received and accepted you are fit to stand before a holy God because of the work of his son and yet may it compel us to live for him who has died for us. I will invite all here this evening who are believers in Jesus Christ to participate in this meal. If you're visiting with us this, this evening, or not, not even if you're visiting with us, but if you're not a believer, uh, we certainly hope that you feel welcome. We're pleased to have you here, but the Bible does instruct that this meal is for believers in Jesus only. So when the plates are passed by, we would appreciate it if you could just discreetly pack, continue to pass them by and not participate in this meal. And for us believers, can we take a moment, as the Bible instructs us, to ask God to search our hearts, that we might repent of any sin, and that come to a cross 
where we find our Savior welcomes us. Let us pray together. Dear Father, you are the one who has made us, you are the one who sustains us, you are the creator of heaven and earth, and we have, every one of us, rebelled against you. When you intend only good for us, we have chosen to go our own way. And yet, rather than being done with us, you have sent your Son to die for us. How will we ever understand the depth of your love? How will we ever appreciate the greatness of your grace? Teach us tonight. As we remember our Lord's broken body and spilt blood for our redemption, will you teach us tonight a little bit more of your love, a little bit more of your grace, that we might live in light of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will the deacons